Okay, welcome everybody. Um, it is a big honor to have you here for one of my favorite classes of the year, one of my favorite topics, and I hope that you will agree with me that this is an incredibly insightful and different perspective to current events than you might be used to. We're going to try to present to you the Torah approach, what I believe to be the Torah approach to um, politics. And I think that it'll be quite refreshing. So allow me to share my PowerPoint presentation with you. By all means. Great. Appreciate that. Okay. Here we go. Okay, welcome to the Kabbalah of politics. We live in a time of incredible polarity. Fragmentation that, can't, that people can't even have conversations with those who share different viewpoints. So I want to begin with a quote from William Hamilton. I'm sorry, from, from a letter to William Hamilton written by... Who said this? Sorry. Thomas Jefferson. I never considered a difference of opinion in politics, in religion, in philosophy as a cause for withdrawing from a friend. So they often say that two things you shouldn't talk about at the dinner table with relatives is politics and religion. So tonight, my intention is to do both. And my hope is that we can do it in a friendly manner to agree to disagree or perhaps to actually challenge ourselves and realize that maybe we have more in common than that actually separates us. So my only request is that we're here to discuss ideas and I request that everyone try to do that maturely and to distance ourselves a little bit from our perspective to try to think outside the box and see things perhaps from another perspective. So now... Nowadays, it's almost as if the world is going in different directions. People on various sides of the political spectrum are almost speaking different languages. Right and left are so, are so intent on negating each other that nothing ever gets done. And it even trickles down into our public life. We live in fear of expressing our opinion at times because if someone we know doesn't appreciate our view, we might get canceled, right? And we might get blocked on Facebook. The status of Facebook, friends, is reserved for those who think, vote, and dress, and perhaps maybe even look like us. And that means our world, as big as it is, is actually quite small, because most of our time we're surrounded by people who agree with us. And what happens is that social media becomes an echo chamber, where we're basically just reinforcing our own views without real dialogue. Times when someone posts something that you don't like, so there's quick remarks back and forth, but there's very little dialogue, very little conversation, and certainly no meeting of minds. And what's lost by the wayside is mutual respect. Learning to understand that people with different views are also people. So I grew up extremely liberal. And growing up as a kid in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, I could not even begin to entertain that there were intelligent, good people 
who could imagine voting Republican. It was out of my scope of reference. I thought if you vote Republican, it means that you're, you live south of the Mississippi and you're married to your sister. Right? That, that's, that was my understanding. And uh, I want to let you know that over the years, growing closer to Judaism, traveling the world, moving around quite a bit, I've begun to challenge a lot of the values and the assumptions that I grew up with that to me were gospel. And over time, I've really tried to develop a subjective, apolitical perspective, which tries to look outside the system to understand what's really going on. What's the commonality and what are the values underlying the different perspectives? And I believe that I've come to appreciate and to understand what I think to be the Jewish perspective to politics, according to Kabbalah, which I think is completely outside the bipartisan system and completely blows it out of the water. And ultimately, I believe the Torah perspective will help us navigate the political divide and ultimately bridge it and help to heal it. So I'd like to share with you now my perspective, and uh, I appreciate you coming along for the ride with me, and feel free to interrupt with any questions or comments along the way. Um, I don't see the chat, so uh, now I do. Okay, so feel free to write in the chat if you have any questions or comments, or you can interrupt me if it's a good question or comment. Okay, so we're going to begin with an excerpt from a Mishnah. This is a piece of the Oral Torah, and we're going to come back to this at the end of the discussion, but this is kind of the basis for everything we're going to discuss. And the Talmud says, the Mishnah in Perkei Avos, talks about something called an argument that's for the sake, literally the name of heaven. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what does that mean? What's a good argument? I thought arguments were bad things. Is there such a thing as an argument that's actually good? And not only good, but somehow a spiritual argument. Please mute yourselves, whoever just came in. Gotcha. An argument for the sake of heaven. And literally for the name of heaven, I want to understand what that means. And the Talmud gives an example of an argument that's for the sake of heaven. And it mentions two Talmudic sages, Hillel and Shammai, who were the leaders of the generation shortly before destruction of the temple. And Hill and Shammai had complete polar opposite personalities and very different approaches to life and to Judaism and to teaching. And the Talmud says that their debate, and they argued on almost everything in practical Jewish law and in styles, that their debate was somehow for the sake or for the name of heaven. And this is something we want to emulate in our own life. So I want to come back hopefully at the end to understanding what that means, an argument for the name of heaven, and why Hillel and Shammai are the perfect embodiment of that. So let's continue. So some of you may be familiar with Eastern religions, and particularly the concept from, from Taoism, from Chinese philosophy, which has become pretty, pretty part and parcel with our, uh, our vernacular in the Western world. That's the concept of yin and yang. If anyone's familiar with the concept of yin and yang, it's that every relationship in the world, everything in the world, breaks down into one of two primary energies. And that's yin energy and yang energy. Masculine energy, feminine energy, fire and water. And I want to show you, the, teach you, for those who haven't been exposed to this, and I know Dina was because she answered this question in the last time I taught this. 
is that in, in Torah, these, these break down into two primary en- energies. One of them is called chesed, which is often translated as kindness. And the other is gevura, which translates as strength. So these two energies make up the framework of reality according to Kabbalah. Every single relationship, every conversation, every personality type breaks down into one of these two energies. And I want to explain to you a little bit about what they are. And then we'll apply them to life. So, chesed personality we're starting with. And on the other hand, we have gevura. One of them represents strength and one of them represents kindness. Which do you think is masculine and which do you think is feminine? And if you know the answer to this question, if you've had this conversation with me before, then let someone else respond. Could someone give a guess, a shout out? What do you think is masculine, kindness, or strength? And which is feminine? Strength is masculine. Okay, Jalen. So I usually do a survey, and most people I teach this to, usually assume that strength is masculine. And the answer, of course, is if I'm asking it means that it's the opposite of what you would have thought. And that's the way it is often in Judaism, and especially in Kabbalah, that Judaism looks at the world from a completely different perspective than what you would have thought initially, almost always. Uh, The Torah sees things from an internal perspective. We're trained in the Western world to see things externally. So, It's true that men are externally perhaps stronger, which is why many people think that men are strong. Women might be kinder. The reality is is that in Kabbalah, we're not talking about people and behaviors. We're talking about energies. And we're really, when it comes to Chesed and Gevorah, we're really talking about directions. The direction of kindness. We learned from the procreation process that the male gives the seed to the female, reaches outside himself and gives the DNA to the female. The female receives that and turns that into into life. So male energy in Kabbalah is the energy of moving beyond yourself, outside yourself, translated as giving, going outside and away from yourself. And it has to do with the energy of expansion. Male energy is about transcending borders. It's about, chesed is about going beyond and breaking through barriers. And when it comes to actions, it has to do with giving charity, has to do with sharing. It's focused on the other, on the community. It's looking outside itself and it's externally oriented. Now, when we talk about emotions, what emotion do you think corresponds to chesed? Does anyone want to take a guess of an emotion that might relate to this energy? Generosity. (laughs) Generosity. Is that an emotion? I don't, maybe not. So the emotion of chesed, according to Kabbalah, all emotions actually break down into two primary emotions. And that's love... Love and fear. Movement towards. Love is the desire to come close to someone and movement away from. So, chesed corresponds to love. 
Now let's go to the other side of the aisle. Let's talk about Gevura. Gevura is explained, expressed as feminine energy. We're not talking about men and women. We're just talking about energies. And Kabbalah breaks down into masculine and feminine. And it has to do with receiving, of internalizing. Because true strength in Judaism is not how much weight you can lift or how many people you can beat up. True strength, says the Mishnah in Perkei Avos, Ezehu Gibor, who's a strong person? Someone who controls themselves, someone who controls their desires. So true strength, according to the Torah, is inner strength. And that has to do with contraction, movement towards yourself. And it's about preserving borders. Instead of charity, chesed is about equality and giving. Gevura strength is about justice and individuality. It focuses on the individual and on the internal world. And when it comes to emotions, it's the emotion of fear, the emotion of movement away from. So here we have the two primary energies. Does anyone have any questions before we move on to see an example of this in the Torah? So according to the Torah, we're right now reading the Torah portions of the beginning of Jewish history. And we go through the Torah, begins with Adam and Eve, and there's discussion of some of these energies in the first book of the Torah, that God created the world primarily with the energy of chesed. Initially, God, it says the Torah, the very beginning of the Torah, that God, there's different names of God in the Torah that represent these two different energies. It says initially God wanted to create the world with gevura, with strength, and then he saw that the world could not survive on strength alone, on justice. That means what you do is what you get. And so it says that God added in rachamim, which is compassion or chesed. So the world is run with both of these energies. And as we go through Jewish history, we're introduced to different uh, characters in the Torah who embody, according to Kabbalah, these different energies. But first we'll start out with two societies that are run on these energies. And the first society we learned about a few weeks ago, that's the generation of Noah. In Noah's generation, the generation was guilty of certain egregious behaviors. And I want to show you what these behaviors are, and then I'd like to try to think deeper to get to the value underneath these behaviors. So Noah's generation believed in free love. They believed in sexual relationships with Everyone, without regard to marital status, gender, age, and species, says that people of the time were very into bestiality. That's number one, free love. Number two, says the Torah, is stealing. Widespread stealing of very small amounts of money that, you know, it wouldn't be a big deal if I took a small thing away from you. But if everyone took a small thing away, then pretty soon all the vendors in the market had nothing left because everyone stole something small from them. So the attitude the Talmud tells us, again in Perkei Avos, of the generation of Noah's, of Noah's flood is what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. The attitude of it's, it's all free. So what do you think the value is behind the society? What would you think? What's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. If you think about it a little bit, it's a little bit akin to, the, to hippies. That's why I like to think about Noah's generation. What do you think the value is behind that lifestyle? 
free love, no possessions, no private property. Sounds a little like communism. A little like communism. What's the value behind it? That everyone's equal. Okay, excellent. So it's a lack of boundaries. It's that we're all one. We're all in this together, very similar to communism. Now, if you think about it in terms of energies, what energy is that? An excess of? Remember, we have chesed and gevurah. Chesed is the expansion going beyond oneself. Gevurah is contraction. So what would you say Noah's generation corresponds to? Chesed. Chesed. And in fact, the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, explains that sexual immorality has its root in chesed, too much chesed, lack of boundaries. And chesed in, enter in the elements corresponds to water. So a generation that has lack of boundaries, too much kindness, gets flooded with too much water. Water represents kindness. And you'll notice, if you come to my house for Shabbos, or if you ever go to a Hasidic home, that there's a custom to put a little bit of water in the wine on, at, at the Shabbos table before you make Kiddush. And the explanation for that is that wine represents strength. Wine is a very sharp, strong uh, liquid, and you always put a drop of water, which represents kindness, to put a little bit of the yin in the yang, a little bit of kindness, chesed, in the gevurah. So now let's look at another society. And this is the society of Sodom and Gomorrah, which we learn about actually in this week's Torah portion. And what was the value of Sodom? So the Talmud tells us that in Sodom it was forbidden to do acts of kindness. If anyone was caught giving bread to the poor, charity, welcoming guests, they would be burned at the stake. If someone came to town and asked for a place to stay, well, they would measure them. If they were, and they'd have one size bed for everyone. If you didn't fit on the bed, the Talmud says, they would cut off your feet to make you fit. And if you were too small for the bed, they'd stretch out your legs. The idea was kindness is not allowed, no welcoming of guests. And from the Torah portion, portion this week, we see that they were, they lived with an ideology of what's your, mine is mine, what's yours and yours. And again, the Talmud tells us this in Perkeavos. The Mishnah that this is the this is the value system of Sodom that I have my stuff you have your stuff and I'm not in this world to help you. They were also famous for rape. Any guests that were caught coming to the town, any visitors would be raped. So what in the world could the value system be behind such a society? How could it be? I mean, very simply, it looks like an evil, horrible, twisted society. But I believe the Torah is teaching us a value system. What do you think the value is behind Sodom? Every man for themselves. Ah, excellent. Absolute individuality. And if we oops, and if we think about that in terms of energy, so if chesed is water, so gavura is fire. And Sodom is in fact burned up in a fire and a hailstorm, fire and brimstone. Fireballs. So again, the idea is a society that's built on the value of gavura cannot exist. It's too extreme. It's extreme gavura. And does anyone know where Sodom is in 
present-day Israel, where the historical Sodom was? By the Dead Sea. By the Dead Sea. Excellent. And the Dead Sea is a place of complete arid saltiness and sulfur. And uh, salt, according to Kabbalah, represents gvura, because salt is used to preserve meat. Salt preserves borders and boundaries. Salt represents the strength of gvura. Sugar, on the other hand, represents chesed. Sugar dissolves. If you put something in sugar, it dissolves away and eats away and gets rid of borders and boundaries. That's why on Shabbos, again, challah represents kindness. Challah is a nourishing food. We always dip the challah in a little bit of salt to once again balance the chesed with a little bit of its opposite energy, a little bit of gavura. So let's move on to the personalities that we're introduced to in the Torah. And we're going to be discussing this in my Thursday night podcast much more in depth. But basically put, according to Kabbalah, the three forefathers of the Jewish nation, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, Avraham represents chesed. Avraham is constantly transversing boundaries and borders. He's called the Ivri which means the Hebrew, the one from over there who crossed over the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. His entire life, he's coming into Israel, out of Israel, back into Iraq, or over to Syria, down to Egypt, back to Israel. And his entire life is expansion. And Avraham's tent is open on all four sides. His life is devoted to doing kindness for people. And in fact, in this week's Torah portion, we'll discuss it more Thursday night, Avraham... Uh, is basically is meditating and having a deep conversation with God, and suddenly he sees guests, and he says, God, I'll be back, and he runs to welcome in guests. And we learn from that an amazing teaching in Judaism from the Talmud, which says that we see from this that it's greater to do kindness for strangers than it is to welcome God into your life. So, very interesting. And then we have, on the other extreme, Yitzchak, Avram's son, Yitzchak, is Gevura. He represents strength. Yitzchak never leaves the boundaries of the land of Israel. He never goes out of Israel. He's willing to give his life up for God as a sacrifice. And we learn many different lessons from Yitzchak that have to do with Gevura. And finally, we have the concept of Yaakov. Yaakov is the son of Yitzchak. And Yaakov represents the third energy in Kabbalah, which is called Tiferis, which translates as beauty, harmony, and balance. And the Torah tells us that the goal is to bring about a balance between Chesed and Gevura. That Chesed is extreme, Gevura is also extreme, and the goal is to bring them together to find the middle energy. And again in Perkei Avos, it teaches us that the goal of life is to find the balance, which is called Tiferis, beauty or harmony. And, of course, um, we'll talk about more at another date, but Avraham is married to Sarah, and we know that opposites attract. So Avraham, who represents Chesed, marries Sarah, who represents Gevura. Yitzchak, who is Gevura, marries Rivka, who represents Chesed. And Yaakov, who represents Tiferes, is married to two wives, Rachel, Rachel, and Leah, who represent Chesed and Gevura. So we have the complete picture, and they also have different children who also represent different aspects of the energies. But again, we'll talk about that another time. 
because we don't have enough time tonight to go into all the details. So now let's let's talk about current events, okay? Now that we have the framework, the Torah framework of reality, which is made up of energies, the energy of of chesed, kindness, giving, expansion, going beyond, the energy of gevura, strength, contraction, going within, individuality. Well, what is Judaism? What is God? Is God red or blue? And what do you guys think based on what you guys know of Judaism so far? Where does Judaism stand on the political spectrum? So let's find out. Okay? Let's take a look. So let's break apart the ideologies. And something that I like to do, which I think is pretty radical, is to learn to see things from a value perspective. I think this is at the root of Talmudic learning is to break apart things in life and get to the essence. What's the value behind the ideology? And if we can understand the values, most of the time we find that we have much more in common. If we argue about the details, so we're speaking different languages, but if we start to speak in values, we can actually have conversations and begin to bring bridge gaps. So what does liberal ideology really stand for? And I don't know where you guys are on the political spectrum, but it really doesn't matter because this is an opportunity to think from another perspective. Okay, so liberal ideology. I believe, and I've, had, I've talked this over with uh, my neighbor, who's a political analyst, and uh, he said I, I pretty much hit it on the head. It, I, liberal ideology is, the concept is the greater good overrides the individual good. The goal is equality. Ultimately, the goal is that we should have equal outcomes. As many people as possible should share the stuff. Now, we know that one of the major debates, right, of, of, of the, although there are many going on right now, in, uh, it's funny because they weren't really, the debates weren't really debates. They were more like mudslinging at each other. But uh, normally a debate is supposed to debate issues. And we know one of the issues is the idea of open borders. How do we deal with immigration? So, liberal ideas the open borders. Breaking down social conventions, right? Certain things that are traditionally understood as the way things were, well, let's, let's challenge those. Who says they should be that way? Expansive government. Government should be really big to regulate the production of wealth or the, uh, or the sharing of wealth so that more people can have more stuff. And ultimately, that things should be shared. Free resources. That Why should you have to pay for education, healthcare, housing, welfare? Let's all get as much benefits to as many people as possible. That might require taking it away from people that have a lot, but ultimately if we can share the distribution of wealth, so then more people will have. So what is the energy behind this? And finally, that the Constitution is a living document. The Constitution is something that's evolving. It's not written in stone. Okay, let's, let's look at conservative ideology on the other hand. So what's the value behind conservative ideology? So I believe that at the root of it is like we saw in Sodom, that an individual good leads to greater good. It's not that we don't care about the greater good. It's just that if you support individuals, so those individuals will succeed, and then there'll be a trickle down that will benefit the greater population. Right? It's not about equal outcomes. 
according to conservative ideology, it doesn't matter that everyone has the same stuff. They just have need equal opportunities. Give them the opportunity and let them succeed on their own. Strengthen borders, as we've seen in politics. Don't let open up the borders to everyone. Close off those borders. Focus on the on our own nation. Preserve social conventions. Don't change things. Keep things the way they were. And a small government, ultimately, because it's up to the individuals. We don't want someone telling us what to do. And it's about personal achievement. It's not about sharing the wealth. It's about each person for themselves. Give them the pleasure of accomplishment. Don't give them free handouts. And if they accomplish on their own, they'll appreciate so much more that a benefit. And then they'll work much harder so that they can achieve as well. No free handouts. It's the opposite of that. And a strict interpretation of the Constitution. So I believe we have on the board the, the essence behind these two. These are the main, main principles. And it comes down to how we define all sorts of areas in life, whether it's marriage, abortion, health care, uh, borders, immigration, um, taxation, and all sorts of other areas of life. Now, it looks often like there's, 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 no, there's completely different values behind systems, right? But how does it work? How can it be? And, and it, bother, it boggles my mind because I try to listen to news sources from both perspectives. And it sometimes boggles my mind how different they are. But the reality is, I think, at the root of it, is that we're really just talking about two different energies, and if you think about it, liberalism, which equates with chesed. Chesed, expansion, right? It really fits perfectly. Liberalism corresponds with chesed, which corresponds with water. And there's no coincidence that the Democrats are blue. On the other hand, conservatism really fits in perfectly with the Kabbalistic concept of Gevura, strength, borders, boundaries, individualism, which corresponds with fire. And once again, no coincidence that the Republicans are red. So now the question is, what color is Judaism? So something fascinating. We said at the beginning that the Talmud says that the goal one of, the, one of the ideals in life is to have a debate, an argument that's for the name of heaven. So what is the name of heaven? How do you say heaven in Hebrew? Does anybody know? Heaven is Shemayim. And the Talmud explains, Rashi brings it right at the very beginning of creation in the, in the book of Genesis, that Shemayim is really made up of two Hebrew words. One of them is Aish, and the other is Mayim, fire and water. That heaven is a place where fire and water come together without extinguishing each other. The idea, the ideal in Judaism is to bring together these different elements, these different energies. That's the idea of an argument that's for the sake of heaven. And Hillel and Shammai represent these two ideologies. In the Talmud, Hillel is, expre is expressed as being an extremely kind person. It was impossible to get Hillel angry. In fact, the Talmud tells a story of someone that came to try to annoy Hillel, 
and every he made a bet with somebody that uh, that he could get Hill angry. And Hill was taking a bath before Shabbos, and this guy kept knocking on the door every few minutes and asking him ridiculous questions. And every time Hill would put on his bathrobe and come downstairs and say, "Yes, my son, how can I help you?" And the guy asked him, he's like. Why do people have big feet in a certain part of Africa? And he's like, oh, good question, my son. Excellent question. And Hillel was complete kindness. Shammai, on the other hand, when someone would come and ask him a question, he would push them out of the room. It says that one time a convert came to, to Shammai and said, please teach me the entire Torah while standing on one foot. And Shammai kicked him out. And then he went to Hillel and he said, please teach me the entire Torah standing on, my, on one foot. And Hillel said to him, don't do to others what you do not want done to yourself. He said, that is the essence of the Torah. And essentially, love your neighbor like yourself. And the Talmud tells us that although Hill and Shammai argued on everything, they had a completely different worldview. One saw the world through the lens of Chesed, the other saw the world through the lens of Gevura, and yet they had such love for each other. Their children married each other. Their students learned with each other. The idea is that it's different perspectives, and the Torah tells us that we need these two perspectives. In fact, it says that there was once a heavenly voice that came out and said, both Hillel and Shammai are teaching the words of the living God. That they're both true, says the Talmud, but the halacha, the law, goes according to Hillel because they're kinder. Because we need kindness in our life. That's what the Torah says. And yet, according to Kabbalah, in the future, in the Messianic era, the law will be in accordance with Hillel, with Shammai. Because they're both true, they're just different perspectives that are necessary in different times of our lives. They say that if, when you're young, if you're a conservative, it means you're cruel. And when you're old, if you're a liberal, it means you're stupid. That's, that's the phrase. I didn't make it up. But again, different parts of life, different stages of life require different energies, and I believe different personality types are drawn more to one energy over another. Neither one is better or worse, according to the Torah. So what color is Judaism? Judaism is purple. And in fact, the Torah refers to the Jewish nation as an Am Segula, a treasured nation. And the word Segula... In Hebrew, is the word for purple. Take blue and red and put them together. That's the goal of Judaism, is that we should achieve balance. We all are born with different inclinations in different areas. Some more extreme in one area, others extreme in another area. And the goal is to come back to balance, to learn how to live in harmony within ourselves and with each other. So what does this have to do with society? What does this have to do with bipartisan politics? How do we heal the world? How do we go out and see people that are literally killing each other? I mean, not yet, but it you know we're so close. We're so close to something. If something would a spark would set it off in the wrong way, it's not so impossible to imagine a civil war, right? You can imagine. I was actually my family went and picked apples um, a few weeks ago. And the farm that we were picking apples with, I was speaking to the, one of the uh, farmers that, that owns the, the farm. And he said, yeah, our family's been here since the Civil War. He's like, what's going on nowadays? It's nothing. <laughs> We've seen worse. But we're not so far off from, you, know, you can imagine how easily a society could deteriorate into civil war. 
So what does the Torah teach us about bridging these gaps? And I like to call this, this, this topic conflict revolution because we have to learn how to see through the conflict and how to heal the conflict. So how do we do that? So I believe the answer is as follows. According to psychology, you will be shocked to discover that people, although we like to think of ourselves as rational, right? we all like to think that we're intellectual and we make rational decisions. I like to think of myself that way. According to Daniel Kahneman, a Nobel Prize winning psychologist in Israel, of course, there is almost no such thing as an intellectual decision. Do you know that most of us make our decisions based on our emotions? And, and psychology has proven this numerous ways, and he won a Nobel Prize for it, as what is considered the most revolutionary idea in modern-day economics and psychology, is that almost all belief is based on our emotions. We have a certain inclination based on our, our birth, where our souls are related either to chesed or gevorah, for the most part, our souls are rooted in kindness or strength, and therefore, and then we find a political system or a lifestyle and that we justify intellectually. But usually we're inclined towards a certain direction based on our emotions or based on our, our natural intuition. Or for most of the world, it's based on the way we're brought up. Most people do what their parents did or what their society does. Very few people challenge the values of their society. But for those of us who do, we like to think that we're free thinking, myself included. The answer is probably not. Probably we have an inclination based on our soul vibration. So all news is really fake news because statistics are used to prove everything. You ever notice that? I did an experiment a little while ago in one of our programs that we showed a clip, a video clip from a conservative news station talking about a certain issue. I think it might have been Black Lives Matter. And then we showed a clip from a liberal news outlet and drawing the exact opposite conclusion from similar statistics. How could it be that statistics lie? The answer is it's all in the way the statistics are analyzed and approached. So seeing isn't really believing. In fact, it's just the opposite. And modern psychology proves this. Believing is seeing. You have a certain belief system, and then you see it everywhere. It's confirmation bias, and it's in every single aspect of our lives. So if that's the case, if we are all intrinsically flawed, if we all see the world in our own narrow perspective, then how are we supposed to come to truth? How are we supposed to bridge the gaps? If everyone's seeing the world based on their own perspective, which is so totally warped and twisted, we don't have the ability to see the truth. How are we supposed to heal society? If I'm forever trapped in my own framework. So the answer, I believe, is straight out, once again, from the Talmud, again from Perkeavos, says as follows. And this, I believe, my friends, is wisdom for life. If you want to heal the problems of society, the Talmud says a three-part system for seeking truth, for becoming a truth seeker. Point number one, make for yourself a rabbi. Says Yeshua ben Parachia, some say was actually the teacher of Jesus, who was a Talmudic student, according to certain uh, historians and traditions. Yeshua ben Parachia says, first rule is make for yourself a, t- a rabbi, find a teacher, find somebody who's above you, 
who spent their life studying wisdom, who can teach you what values are important, what the right value system is for life. Get yourself a teacher to teach you values. And now, perhaps more importantly, acquire for yourself a friend. What is a friend? A friend is an equal that you can now work together on integrating those values into your life. So what type of friend is the best friend that you should have? When you look for a friend, when you look for a study partner, in Judaism, Torah is always learned in pairs. It's called chavrusa learning. Chavrusa literally means friend. You always learn with a partner. What's the ideal type of study partner? What's the ideal type of friend in life? Someone who's like you or someone who's not like you? So most of us like friends who are like us, right? What were we going to say, Dina? I was going to say a good study partner is someone who knows the content that I don't know, and I know the content that they don't know, ah. and we teach each other the content. If we both know the same things and we don't know the same things, then that doesn't make for a great study but partner. You see, Dina, that's an excellent point, and of course you should look for someone who compliments you, but it's not just in what you know. Because Torah learning is not about what you know. You can both know the same topic. When you learn Torah, you're supposed to approach it with your mind and ask yourself if you agree with it. Ask yourself if you understand it. And you're each inevitably going to approach the same passage and interpret it completely differently. So if you really want to approach a text and get to the truth, the goal is to find a study partner who is the opposite of you, who has a complete different worldview, and together you can break yourself, break apart the text and try to come to the truth. This is a modern day yeshiva. So when I first studied in yeshiva, my first chavruso, I'm still very good friends with, we were almost complete opposites in the way we saw the world. And we argued on almost everything. And the first few days in yeshiva, I wanted to literally punch him in the face every time we tried to break apart a passage. But it took years of working on it to recognize that the goal of learning Torah is not to be right. Guys, do you get this? Most of our lives, we're trying to be right at the expense of being right. <laughs> you know, a friend of mine spoke to a doctor who told him that many doctors will overlook the actual cause of a disease in order to prevent themselves from being proven wrong. Do you know that most people would rather make a huge mistake and risk a patient's life than be proven wrong? And it's not just doctors. It's all of us. How often do you find yourself debating something with someone, knowing deep down inside that really you're wrong and they're right, but it's so hard to admit it because our egos get in the way. So the goal of Torah learning is to get over your ego. It's not about me being right and proving you wrong. It's about me expressing my opinion, you expressing your opinion, then me trying to understand your opinion, you trying to understand my opinion, and hopefully we'll come together to a balanced perspective that's somewhere in the middle that will enlighten us and uplift us and help us find the truth because the truth requires both perspectives. And that's the final point of this Mishnah. Make for yourself a rabbi, acquire for yourself a friend, and judge everyone favorably. Don es koladam lechafschus. Recognize that the people with the other political perspective, they are also 
caring, intelligent, and passionate people who want to save the world and who care about the future of our planet. How could that be? The answer is speak to them. Try to understand them. If you believe, and this is extremely important, if you believe that everyone who disagrees with you is bigoted, stupid, ignorant, or evil, you are actually part of the problem. If you think that those who have differences of opinion, different religions, different cultures, are bigoted, stupid, ignorant, or evil, you are part of the problem. Instead, assume that everyone is as, as informed, as intelligent, as well-meaning, accepting, and open-minded as you, and you become part of the solution. You might not share the same perspective, but most of the time, most of the time, most people in the world care about truth care about goodness, and they just have a different approach, a different perspective. So the answer, according to the Torah, if we want to solve society's problems, is to bring together the liberals and the conservatives in the same room. Not fighting over power, but listening to each other. Because we need both perspectives in order to save society. Both perspectives have something valid to offer. We need to work together. We need to create a system that... that that encourages collaboration, that encourages a marriage and a meeting of the minds. If that would exist, then change could actually happen and society could come to a place of balance and harmony. That, I believe, is a Jewish perspective. I don't know how to do it, but I know how to do it in my own life. In my own life, it means listening. Listening a little bit more to the other person and speaking a little bit less. You know, the definition of humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. right? Learning to think about others and hear others and trying to get myself into their perspective. Try this in your relationships. Try this with your roommate, your parents, and, never, and someday with your spouse. If you can learn to listen to their perspective, most of the time, it's not about I was right versus she was right. It's usually, oh wow, I totally get where you're coming from. Because if I was in your shoes, I would think the same way you do. And getting out of our ego, getting out of our narrow perspective on life. So I think this is the message that we have to show the world as the Jewish people. We are the purple nation. It's not about taking sides. Because no political system can ever be right all the time. Do you ever wonder, how does it make sense? Can't, can't I be for... Uh, can't I be for... Um, let me think of a good example... <laughs> You know, my sole inclination is towards one of the two sides, as most of us are. But can't I be for, um, you know, supp- supporting Israel or having being strong with with other countries or having having strong uh, uh, tariffs and yet also care about the environment? Is it mutually exclusive? Do you have to agree with the, the Democrats in everything or agree with the Republicans in everything? The answer is it's just sports. It's been turned into my team versus your team. And most people are voting based on their team, not based on the issues. If you find yourself agreeing with every single issue of one party, it's one of two things happening. Either you're brainwashed or it's your soul trying to express itself. And if it's your soul trying to express itself, just know that you're biased. Just know that you're not seeing things clearly. And you have to get yourself a friend, a friend on the other side of the aisle that can teach you about a different perspective and perhaps together you can come to understand that the truth is usually much bigger than you and me. The truth is usually 
is always expansive and inclusive. And the goal of humanity is to come to a place where the Torah perspective fills the earth, where we're able to see bigger, bigger than our egos, and ultimately to bring the world closer to the completion, to a place of harmony and truth. Thank you, my friends, for listening. Questions, comments.